Would you please stand as Aaron comes to read our scripture for us this morning? Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 14, 3 through 12. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as we come to the end of our study through the New Testament in the life of John the Baptist and his ministry as preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we are called also as Christ followers to prepare the way for him to come again. As we come to the end of this series, I want to go back to the beginning of our time in Advent. If you remember our first Sunday in Advent several weeks ago, we started with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And the moment that the angel came to them and proclaimed to them all of these wonderful things about their son John who was to be born and all that God would do through him. The angel said, John, your baby, your child, will be a joy and a delight to you, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the wicked and disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's how John's life began. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And yet as we fast forward to the end of his life here, Elijah was taken up in this glorious moment in a whirlwind to heaven. John's death, as described by Matthew and also Mark, describes the same thing in even more detail in Mark chapter 6. John died in a way that was not a happy ending. It was not a moment that felt as though it had much dignity in it. And some have called this the darkest text in the New Testament. Not because it's the darkest moment, but because it's the most vivid in its description of the evil that takes place. I even wrestled during the week if whether or not we should give our parents a parental warning about this passage because it's so vivid in its descriptions. And really what we see here on display is sin. So what I want to talk about this morning by way of application for us from this dark, difficult text is a topic that's not very popular to talk about, but it is sin and its destructiveness. 
and how clearly we see that here on display in the moment where John's life is taken from him. If you were to back up just a couple of verses to the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, what we read here is that right, right now in this moment, it's the center of Jesus' busiest time in Galilee. Matthew's not really talking about John anymore at this point. He's following Jesus in his very public ministry now, and he's reporting all of the things that Jesus is doing. But this now description of what happens to John comes as an aside because of the rumors that are spreading around about Jesus. People are starting to talk and ask, who could this man be? Who is this Jesus? Who might he be in the big picture of everything that God said would happen and, and that God is doing in this time in which we live. And so rumors began to spread that Jesus was actually John the Baptist risen from the dead. And one of the people who clearly believed this report was Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, who's the Herod we're talking about in this text. He heard about all of the amazing things that Jesus was doing, and he said, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. You know what I see here? I think Herod was clearly haunted after he put John to death by the injustice he had brought upon them and the evil thing that he had done. It reminded me of an old story I read when I was in school. Many of you probably read the short stories of Edgar Allan Poe. It reminded me of the telltale heart. It's as if Herod can hear that soft thumping beneath the floorboards every time he thinks about John. And the death that he brought upon him. And as we've said at the heart of this passage. Is a clear picture of sin. And it's destructiveness. And especially what happens. When we become aware of our sin. And yet we refuse to repent. So each point today as we walk through this text. Will be our application. And here's the first one. And I believe we see it so clearly in these first three verses. When we experience conviction of sin that God brings to us, he convicts us of the sin in our lives, our responses to that conviction will either be to ignore God's conviction, to resist it, to outright defy it, or to repent. John the Baptist had a couple of things working against him there at the end of his ministry the first is that in many ways he'd become more popular than people like Herod and John had become more popular than the religious leaders around them and and when people are popular and people have power they often see others who become more popular as a threat and so John had that working against him the people loved him and they were coming out in droves to hear the word from the Lord that John had received the other thing that John had against him was that he was a blunt truth teller when the Lord gave him a word to proclaim he proclaimed it without apology and in many cases that word from the Lord was on the toes of those people who were in power Herod Antipas is one of those people he was a wicked yet powerful man we call him Herod the Tetrarch because he'd been given a quarter of his father's land his father was Herod I, and he split up his power upon his death between his relatives, and a couple of his sons were those relatives. And Herod had inherited a, a very strategic region, so he not only got the land, but he got the power 
and the throne in that part of the world as well. But Herod had also entered into a sinful marriage, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew that Herod and Herodias had been married to other people before and that their spouses were still living. But they decided that they wanted to marry each other, and so Herodias, who had been married to Herod's brother Philip, divorced him. And Herod, who had been married to a princess from the Nabataean region, divorced her, and they came together. And oh, by the way, Herodias was also Herod Antipas's niece. So there were all kinds of things about this relationship that were wrong. And also, according to Leviticus 18, because his brother was still living, he was forbidden to marry his wife. Herod and Herodias decided to move their capital to a different place. They built their palace upon a pagan cemetery. Everything about their marriage, everything about their life was being thrown back in the face of God's people and the word which they believed. And John confronts Herod because he's sitting in a seat where he's not only reigning as a king or as a supposed king, but he's also supposed to be representing God's word to God's people. And so he tells them his marriage is wrong. He tells them in verse 4, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And yet remember, John's goal here was not to supplant Herod. He wasn't jealous of him. He didn't want his power. He didn't want more popularity for himself. His plan, his goal, his purpose was to proclaim the truth that God gave him to give. But rather than wanting to hear that conviction and repent, Herod wanted to suppress John. And because John was so popular with the people, though Herod actually wanted to kill him, instead he chose to suppress him by having him arrested, bound, and put in prison. And there John was at the moment that Herod's birthday party began. I love this quote from an ancient Christian. The immoral desire not virtue. The wicked hate holiness. The impure see purity as an enemy, much as the corrupt see integrity as inconvenient. The self-indulgent do not understand generosity, and the cruel do not tolerate mercy. Indeed, the merciless hate mercy as the unjust hate justice. We see Herod's heart. We see what happens when we're convicted of sin. We can either ignore it, we can resist the conviction, we can defy it, or we can repent. Herod had no interest in repenting, but instead he responded with sinful pride and destructive consequences followed. The second application from our text, if we choose not to repent when we're convicted of sin, the consequences of sin and unrepentance are increasingly destructive beginning in our own souls as we walk through this the, the heart of this passage i want to break it down a little bit further with this idea of of sin and its consequences unrepentance and its consequences and how that that sickness starts in our own our own soul we can see the sickness of herod's soul on full display simply by what happens at his birthday party where in order to appeal to Herod's sinful lust, a young woman who was his stepdaughter, the daughter of Herodias, who history tells us later, her name was Salome. I think it's important that we say her name. 
She was made to dance an illicit dance to entertain a group of drunken men. Not only was Salome their child, but because of the position they held, she was a princess, and no princess should be subjected to this kind of behavior. What's even worse is the Greek word that's used here in Matthew and also used in Mark is not the word that means woman. It's the word that means young girl. And most scholars would say that Salome was probably between the age of 12 and 16, and most likely she had no choice in the matter. This is a depraved and a debased level of evil where a princess dances provocatively, alluringly, and seductively in front of a bunch of drunken men. And it's at this moment when Salome is dancing that Herod's sin and its consequences begin to spiral out of his control. Because verse 9 tells us that as Salome is doing this dance, Herod didn't just make an oath to her. He didn't just make a promise. He swore several oaths. So as she's dancing, he's promising her more and more and more, swearing these oaths publicly in front of his guests. Once this promise is made, Mark tells us he had not only promised her with oaths, he had told her, I will give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. She went to her mother. Verse 8, prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Actually, Mark says, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist here and now. Not just a promise. I want his head here and now. And the king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to Salome, who then carried it to her mother. A dark, dark text from the New Testament indeed. Herod had sworn an oath. He was stuck between a rock and a hard place. He had to either decide to kill John wrongfully or to break his public oaths publicly in front of his guests. And in the end, he chose to take John's life and clearly you can see here for Herod that the consequences of his sin and his ongoing sin, they are spiraling out of his control. Someone noted that the, the depravity of this party in Herod's circle is even more clear that the presence of a severed head at the dinner table didn't seem to change the mood of the party. This is, this is the moment where you see his sin and the unrepentance on full display. And I love what another scholar said. He said, Herod is great proof that no man can rid himself of sin by eliminating the man who confronted him with it. Even if a man's human accuser is eliminated, his divine accuser is never silenced. His sin is spiraling out of his control. And rather than repenting, Instead, the collateral damage of Herod's sin continues to get worse. Just think with me for a minute about everyone who's affected by Herod's sin and his unrepentance. First of all, there are his guests at the party. Many of them were obviously enjoying the dance, but now they become complicit in one way or another in the death of John the Baptist. And Mark tells us in verse 21 of chapter 6 that when this moment came at the birthday party, those who were present were the high officials 
and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. So here are all these very prominent people in power who now become part of the collateral damage, not only because of the dance and the drunkenness, but because of the beheading of John the Baptist. Also, his wife Herodias is collateral damage. Now, Mark makes clear that it wasn't just Herod who wanted to kill John. It was Herodias as well. But husband and wife are scheming together. And she, too, is being becoming complicit in this murder she is not being led in righteousness nor is she leading in righteousness there's also of course salome who's his stepdaughter and also his niece she was made to dance alluringly before the group of men but also her mother made her complicit in the murder because she not only made that her request from herod because of his oaths she also then had to carry his head in on a platter and give it to her mother. Herod himself. Again, it all starts in our own soul with sin and repentance. Herod himself is collateral damage because he is distressed, as Matthew tells us, but also at the beginning of the chapter, he, he's no longer thinking rationally. He thinks Jesus is John the Baptist who's come back from the dead. He's hearing that that thumping of John's heart in his dreams and in his nightmares. Herod himself is the collateral damage. But then also, our brother and friend who we've loved and honored and been so inspired by during this, this series, John the Baptist, who was beheaded in prison, and then his head was brought in to become a spectacle, a display, a centerpiece at the table at Herod's birthday party. This is our John, John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. The one through whom his ministry, parents were being turned back to their children. And the hearts of the disobedient were being turned to the wisdom of righteousness. And many of the people of Israel were being brought back to the Lord. John, who served faithfully as the messenger who prepared the way for Jesus who when the moment came for John to give up his authority said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease, and he stepped into the background. John the Baptist about whom Jesus said, there has never been anyone else born among women who is greater in the sight of the Lord than John the Baptist. John, whose parents heard from the angel, he will be a joy and a delight to you now loses his life in a moment where there is no dignity and there's tons of wickedness and he becomes a public spectacle in his death because of the whims of a drunken, dirty old man and his friends and the scheming and lying of a conniving and vindictive woman. John is collateral damage for sure in this story. But so also are those who love John. I mean, the, the, the injustice and the death and the evil and the wickedness is bad enough, but verse 12 tells us that John's disciples, those who loved him, cared for him, they had to come in and take his body and, and bury it, and then they went and told Jesus. We think about this story, we read it, we hear it, and it's hard enough for us. We struggle, we wrestle with it, we don't like the images. Imagine what it would have been like to have been alive at the time and been someone for whom John was dearly beloved in your heart. 
If I were one of John's disciples, without question in this moment, I would be asking, God, where is the justice? Because I just don't understand. When I think about grief, sure, I can read the story of John the Baptist and I can say that's hard and I don't understand, but I wasn't there. John and I weren't personal friends. I don't feel that grief so personally. And I also know what happens in the rest of the story. I know that John's honored by Jesus. I know that we remember him 2,000 years later as a faithful servant in the work of the kingdom and in the work of God. I know that Jesus finishes this story and he dies on the cross and he becomes the sacrifice for our sin and he rises from the dead. So I know all of that and I can look back on John's story and I can say there's a, there's a lot of light yet to come out of this darkness, right? But what about when I deal with that grief in my life? What about when it, it hits me personally and that, that darkness or what feels like injustice is, is present right in front of my eyes? We've been through a, a tough season these last two years. I would imagine that every single person in this room, every single person watching online, that, that death and sickness has touched you or your family in some way in the last two years. Philip would agree that in the last two years we've been a part of more funerals and memorial services we haven't counted because we don't really want to know the number but a lot more in the last two years than i can imagine we would have in the previous five combined it's been tough it's been hard and and, and personally last year i had a few very hard losses that that were really hard and that grief was was fully present and i was even even wearing it on the outside for people to see which is pretty rare for me how do we deal with grief when it hits us at home as someone said when when one of my dear friends passed away last year to love someone is to risk pain because we know that's true when we when we love we are opening ourselves up we're making ourselves vulnerable and risking pain but also how about just dealing with the grief that comes when it seems like things are upside down and wrong like in this story when it seems like the righteous are suffering and the evil are prospering when we, we look at the darkness in the world around us and it, it makes us struggle with, here, here's a theological word for it, our theodicy, our view of theodicy. Theodicy simply just describes the justice and goodness of God despite the existence of evil. When we look around our world right now, we, we prayed for Ukraine this morning, but over the last several years, we've seen so much darkness in other places too. Ukraine is one, Afghanistan human atrocities in places like syria and africa and and yemen and myanmar and venezuela we see all kinds of human rights violations in places like north korea and against the uyghur people in china and if we're honest we don't have to look far here in our own shores to see there's plenty of evil and darkness to go around here in the united states even as Kinley shared a, a selection, we, we still struggle with some of those same things all those years later. There's darkness around us, and when it seems like the righteous are suffering and the evil are prospering, who among us don't sometimes look to God and say, where is the justice? Well, I want to give you just a, a word here that I, I believe has been comfort to me, and I hope it will be comfort to you. In fact, this is probably... The most common response I've ever given when somebody asks me a really hard question about something really hard that's happening in the world. 
I believe with all my heart that God is the God of the brokenhearted. And I believe that God is also grieved about all the brokenness in our world. I also believe that God has promised us that it will not be this way forever. And that if we continue to follow Jesus, he will not lead us astray, but rather he will lead us into eternal life where brokenness and war and evil and sickness and death will no longer be an issue. I believe that God is good. I, can believe, I believe that I can trust him. And I have continued to believe that even when evil, loss, and justice hits close to home for me as well. Can I tell you something else that gives me comfort? Jesus was included in those who love John. Those who love John are the collateral damage of Herod's sin, and, and Jesus is one of them. Because look at what happens in the next two verses. So we read through verse 12. Look at what happens in verses 13 and 14. So the disciples went and told Jesus what had happened with John. And when Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Why did Jesus, in the midst of this very busy season of his ministry, get into a boat and go off by himself after he heard about what happened to John? Is it because he was afraid of Herod? No way. Jesus withdrew because in his humanity, he felt the grief. He felt the loss. He, too, was collateral damage of sin and unrepentance and wickedness and injustice. And he got away by himself, and we don't know the content of what he said, but I imagine that Jesus went by himself because the only person who could comfort him in his loss was his heavenly Father. And Jesus withdrew by boat to a solitary place. He spent time with the Lord. Jesus probably even went through the process of lament. Which, by the way, that's the, the next sermon series we're going to. I haven't really done a good job of promoting it positively this morning, have I? We're going to go into the book of Lamentations for Lent. But listen, I want you to hear. In every lamentation, we will see hope. In every one of those moments where Jeremiah and God's people are saying, God, we are broken because of what's happened. We hate it. There's also the promise of God's deliverance and redemption. And look at what Jesus does. He withdraws by boat to a solitary place, but the crowds who have been following him everywhere, they follow him around the lake, and they're waiting for him on the other side. And when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he didn't say, now's not a good time. He didn't say, you know, right now I need some me time. I don't have space for you. But as Jesus does, for us he did for them he also sees our grief he also sees our hurt and he also sees our need for healing and when he saw the large crowd he had compassion on them even in the midst of his own grief for the loss of his loved one his relative the forerunner who had gone before him to prepare the way he had compassion on them and he healed their sick don't ever fall for the lie that the enemy tells us all the time, my sin only affects me. Don't ever fall for that lie 
because the, the collateral damage of Herod's sin and unrepentance is on full display here, and, and even Jesus grieved over what took place. So as we bring things to a close this morning, I do want us to end on a happy note. Yes, when we experience conviction of sin, our responses will either be to ignore, to resist, to defy that conviction, or, or to repent. If we don't repent, the consequences of sin and unrepentance are increasingly destructive. It doesn't just affect us, but it begins in our own souls. But here's a great landing spot for this series and for the life of John the Baptist. Those who walk with God in righteousness and faithfulness honor God in life and in death. And even though John's death seems to be a moment where there's very little dignity left, he honored God in his death, and we sit here today remembering him as one who walked in righteousness and faithfulness and proclaimed the word of God. And think about this also. John honored Jesus and prepared the way for him in his life. He also prepared the way for him in his death. Think about the similarities between Jesus and John. Both of them were arrested for proclaiming truth that confronted and inconvenienced those in power. And both of them had to have trumped up charges brought against them. Herod Antipas hesitated and did not want to execute John, just like later Pontius Pilate will hesitate. He doesn't want to execute Jesus. Herodias finally got her way through scheming and pressure, just like the chief priests and the Pharisees are going to do to Jesus. They're finally going to get their way through lying, scheming, and pressuring. Both John and Jesus were executed by civil authorities. And John's disciples took his body and buried it, just as Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who loved Jesus, would do later for him. The people who loved John buried him. The people who loved Jesus buried him. Imagine the similarities that that believers would see in that generation as John, even in his death, prepared the way for Jesus. John walked with God and faithfully fulfilled the calling on his life to prepare the way for Jesus. He did not only announce the Messiah with words, but he pointed him out for people to see. And in the end, he gave his life faithfully as God's messenger. And I have to end this morning with a quote from another John, John Chrysostom, Herod cut off John's head, but he did not cut off his voice. May we remember, as we reflect on the time we've spent in this series, that John spoke the very words of God. He pointed others to Jesus, just as we as, as Christ's disciples today have been called to do. Would you pray with me? Lord, today I want to pray specifically for anyone who may feel like they are drowning in their own sin. Lord, I pray that this invitation today would be a time where you would speak so personally to them that they cannot miss that you're the one speaking. Lord, that you would lead them to acknowledge their sin, to confess it, to turn to you away from their sin and towards you in repentance. And Lord, that they would make a, a, either a first-time commitment or a fresh commitment 
to walk with you in righteousness and faithfulness to honor you with their life lord i think that's a question all of us have to wrestle with today are are we honoring you with our lives who are we pointing people to and i pray for my brothers and sisters in christ in this room lord that this would just be a fresh call on us to walk with you faithfully in righteousness to not be pulled astray and aside by all the things that are always trying to drag us away but to follow you closely so that we might truly say we are seeking to be christ-like and lord that we would be faithful in preparing the way that you are going to come again and lord we thank you today with all the darkness in the world that when you come again there will be no more darkness there will only be light in your presence we give you this time, Lord, and ask that you would move in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen.